the Driehaus Center for Behavioral Finance and the DePaul University's Department of Finance, welcome you to the Behavioral Finance Exchange, where we explore those psychological biases, effects, and aversions that hinder investment decisions, as well as methods to lessen their impact. Welcome to DePaul University's Driehaus Center for Behavioral Finance podcast series, The Behavioral Finance Exchange. I'd like to welcome Dr. Ryan Murphy, head of the Decision Sciences Behavioral Insights Group at Morningstar. Ryan, we're so thrilled to have you here today. As background, Ryan earned psychology degrees from Wake Forest University and Western Washington University before getting a PhD in behavioral decision theory from the University of Arizona. Ryan was a postdoc at Columbia University and a visiting professor in the economics department at Zurich University in Switzerland before joining Morningstar in 2016. He continues to research how people make decisions under risk and uncertainty, focusing on decisions that involve money and valuable resources. He's also a frequent guest on Simple But Not Easy, a podcast about investing in behavioral science by Morningstar Investment Management. So Ryan, uh, we know about Morningstar because it's you know it's internationally recognized for the great insights that they provide in helping us select stocks and mutual funds and ETFs. But some listeners may not understand the amount of resources that they dedicate to this area of behavioral sciences. So I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of background on that whole area as well as uh, anything else you'd like to share about yourself. Sure. Well, first of all, great. Thank you very much for having me here. So part of the work I do is is with the team behavioral science team and. Fundamentally, we're interested in studying more about investors. Morningstar has a substantial amount of research about investments, and there's a lot to be said for how people make decisions about risk and money, and that's in many ways the other side of the coin. And that complements a lot of the research activities that Morningstar already has in trying to fulfill our overarching mission of helping investors succeed. So part of that work is helping people, helping investors better understand their own preferences, helping advisors understand the kinds of mistakes or biases that people making financial decisions might have, and think about ways to help them make better decisions. Well, I would like to focus our discussion today around how emotions impact our ability to make decisions, especially as they relate to forecasting. And I was hoping to start off by uh, asking, if could, could you elaborate on inintentional blindness? It's something that I, I know you've presented on before and, uh, and how it relates to our decision making. And I guess, what is it and why does it matter? Right. So there's this great example that's used sometimes at the beginning of, of a talk I give that shows these people passing a basketball to each other. And in the middle of the clip, someone dressed in a gorilla costume walks across the camera's frame, beats his chest, and then walks out of frame. Now, the viewers who are watching this are told to count how many times the players pass the ball to each other. And so they're really focusing their attention on that. And so then at the end of the clip, it takes about 30 seconds or so, you ask people, all right, how many times did people pass the ball? And people will tell you in the audience, well, I think it was 14, 15, whatever. And then you ask how many people saw the gorilla? And maybe less than half the hands in the audience go up. And the other half of people are looking at you like you're from a different planet, right? And this idea is to show people that when we're really fixating, focusing our attention on one thing, there's a lot of things we're simply not aware of. And we're not aware of what we're not aware of. And so this really simple example then highlights this particular bias that we have and start to help people be more aware of the limits of their attention and start to ask themselves, okay, what are the things that I may not have seen here as I'm trying to understand how the world works and make a forecast? I've seen that uh, that video presented and, and you're right. I'm, I'm always struck by how many people 
in the room raise their hand and say they actually saw it or how few, I guess people say they actually saw this gorilla in the middle of the screen. And by the way, for our listeners, if you search uh, Google for gorilla basketball video and you pull up a video, you'll see there, there's uh, the videos out there, but I guess at this point you'll be, <laughs> you'll be looking for it. Right. But it is amazing how, how few people really see it. And so I was wondering if maybe you could, um, now, now that we take this, uh, this concept here of inintentional blindness and clearly how it impacts people, namely they don't see this girl in the video. Can you maybe apply it to something that is more, uh, I guess, uh, to a profession or maybe something more serious that uh, would impact us in everyday life? Right. So that one of the pushbacks you get from people when you show this is they say, okay, that's cute. Nice example. The sort of thing you could maybe show university students, but this isn't serious, right? And so then in, in this talk, when you're presenting this idea to people, you say, all right, well, let's, let me show you this next piece of research. So this was a group of psychologists who had seen this phenomenon, this inintentional blindness, and wanted to see if it would be applied to people who were in a professional situation. And so they found a group of 24 practicing radiologists, and they had them perform a very familiar diagnosis task. And what they did is in the 20 slides or so that these doctors were looking at to make a diagnosis, they inserted a small picture of a gorilla just in the x-ray itself. And this, it wasn't tiny. It was a, you know, about 40 times as big as the kind of lung nodules that physicians might be looking for anyway. And what they discovered is that about 83% of the radiologists simply didn't see it. They didn't find it at all. They weren't looking for a gorilla, obviously, and, and, but they just didn't, didn't notice it. And moreover, that eye tracking analysis was done after the experiment to look and see where their eyes had been gazing. And the vast majority of people who missed it looked right at it. And so again, this is a phenomenon where highly motivated experts operating in their domain of expertise are vulnerable to this idea of inattentional blindness. And so I guess it's a sign, it's, a, it's a, uh, an example of how our mind can trick ourselves. And I, and I think sometimes when we just think about this whole decision sciences area, uh, at least for people who maybe are, are newer to this, it, this is, it's just one more example of how our mind can fool us. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, our brains don't come with an owner's manual. And I think as we do more work in the area of behavioral science and decision sciences, we find these certain quirks of how the mind works. And I think it's worth helping people become aware of these, especially as they're making complex decisions that have substantial consequences for others. And we start to think about how people grapple with uncertainty and the kind of thinking and reasoning that has to go into forecasting. This is a natural place where the kinds of foibles we've been discussing, the biases that people fall prey to, could really get in the way of people performing well. There's another topic I want to bring up. And once again, I've seen you present, you, you do a fantastic job here in this area. And, and I've seen you talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect. I was hoping you could expand a little bit on that. Right. So this is something that comes out of social psychology, uh, named after the authors of it. And they were finding that the people who were the most clueless in particular domains were also clueless about the depth and the durability of their own clueless. Right. So this is a definition that's meta. It's operating at two different levels. And the thinking here is that sometimes people are simply inept at one level, but because of their uh, inability to even recognize that, th they don't see further and see how bad they are doing. And I think that part of that is it's just worth highlighting this. And so when you show this to different people during presentations, they laugh because they've seen people perhaps in a professional situation who have fallen prey to this. But I think the idea is, again, to show that 
being good at something uh, requires this kind of meta level of awareness. And when we start to talk about the bias of overconfidence, I think that this is worth highlighting, that being aware of this requires not only awareness at the task level, but meta awareness of how good one is generally at thinking about these kinds of things. It's um, it's just it's like this idea we got to be hit upside the head by two with a two by four to say, hey, be aware that your mind is playing these tricks on you and specifically that you probably are underappreciating your weaknesses where they exist. Yep. So I think that part of the way to try and help people do better with this is, like you say, some examples that are very in their face that kind of jar them a little bit and then start to have a discussion from there. And so when giving presentations along these lines, the first part of the presentation can be a little bit uncomfortable because you're basically setting up not just that people struggle with decision making and have biases, but the audience, the people standing right in front of you, you you put them through a series of exercises to show that this is pretty universal. We all fall prey to these kinds of things. And then from there, from that position of, well, we're all in this together. So what can we do about it? Well, we don't just throw up our hands and say, well, I, I guess we're flawed. There's actually some things we can start to do, recognizing the limitations of how people think. So a lot of the work in decision sciences has been focused on finding these flaws. I guess how much of your research is spent in this area? Right. So that's actually not an area where I spend a lot of my time, where we spend time looking for new biases. So if you look up the Wikipedia page on decision biases, you'll find long lists. There are over 200 or so now. And so very little of our work is trying to add to that list of foibles and the kinds of mistakes people make. Rather, what I'm interested in trying to think about what is really good decision making? What would a perfectly rational decision agent do in this situation? Recognizing that people are, of course, not always perfectly rational. And then start to think about, okay, what are the biases we know people already fall prey to? And there's some big ones. Overconfidence is one of the biggest ones, certainly in the domain of forecasting. And we start to think about how that would manifest itself. And then where, I, where I'm spending much more of my time and the team is spending their time are thinking about how to leverage those insights to think about ways to help people make better decisions, better forecasts. And so basically this idea of rationality is useful as a starting point, knowing then that people are flawed, but then taking that to the step of, okay, based on this understanding of people being imperfect, how can we still help them get closer to making rational decisions? And part of this draws on lots of research from economics, as well as research from psychology. And, and do you have thoughts that you can share with us now on, on how you can help individuals make better decisions? Well, one of the biases that we're concerned about is this notion of overconfidence. And overconfidence is a phenomenon where people's confidence level outruns their accuracy level. But I think this is one of the most pervasive cognitive biases we see. And part of it's fueled by this lack of awareness that we were talking about before, this inattentional blindness. People aren't aware of the limits of their own beliefs, their their own knowledge, and that can lead them to be very overconfident. Moreover, some of the ways in which people go about looking for information may also be flawed. Things like the confirmation bias may lead people to seek information that confirms what they already think, and that just fuels overconfidence as well. Can we maybe talk about that uh, for a minute in terms of this uh, the confirmation bias? Because I, you know, I teach in this area, and I was an analyst for many years, and I know that this can be insidious, namely as an analyst or portfolio manager, you might have this decision like, okay, well, I really like Apple, the stock. Uh, I'm going to go do some research. And what you ultimately do is you go and you find the sources that are the most positive, most optimistic, uh, most bullish towards the company and its prospects. And then you come back and you say, oh, okay, well, I'm going to put a buy rating on the stock. 
Um, is that, I guess, a fair characterization of confirmation bias? Yeah, absolutely. That's it. I mean, confirmation is this tendency, this natural tendency people have to look for evidence that supports their already pre-existing conclusions they have in their head. And so they seek out more information, which is generally a good thing, but they're doing so in a filtered and biased way to support a conclusion they've already drawn. And you can imagine how that dynamic leads to overconfidence. People are looking for information to only support what they already believe. And that, like you say, that can lead to real problems and potentially very biased views of how the world works. And so along those lines, one of the things that um, I recommend uh, is to try to disprove your thesis. Now, you can't spend all your time uh, as an analyst or portfolio manager disproving your thesis, but you should spend some time on it. And the example I use is I say uh, when I'm working with analysts and students, I'll say when you go to Amazon.com and you find something you're going to buy, let's say a tennis racket or a smoke detector or something, you find the one you think you're going to buy. If you're going to look at the reviews, which ones do you look at? And typically people say, well, they look at the five star reviews because they want to look at the ones that are really positive on what they're thinking about buying. And what I try to get their mind thinking is, no, you probably want to go to the one star reviews and figure out what is it that people don't like to try to disprove your thesis. Uh, Is that is that what we're really talking about here in terms of looking, let's say, at the Apple stock? It's trying to find other people out there that might have a negative view towards uh, towards the stock. Right. It requires people starting with looking for information where they say to themselves, okay, why might I be wrong? And that's a very unnatural starting point for people who are looking for information. And so I think one of the things we can do is start to set up social structures and organizations that facilitate this. So there's this idea, this old idea called the devil's advocate in a meeting. So you nominate someone in the group to essentially be contrary to the other emerging opinions that occur. And this is valuable, not because conflict itself is something we seek, but it's constructive in the sense that it helps different viewpoints be surfaced and avoid confirmation bias and groupthink. And so there's this great research that's come out by Phil Tetlock and some of his colleagues looking at forecasting and looking at the science of how people do this and which people do it particularly well. And one of the points he makes, which I really like, is talking about the motivation of top thinkers, top forecasters. And he said that they regard their views as hypotheses to be tested, not treasures to be guarded. And that's a really useful motivational standpoint. If that can be instilled in people, I think that's valuable. So there's not a lot of ego tied up in whether or not a person's right or wrong or their forecast is true or not. But really what they're looking for are the conjectures and then testing those conjectures. And testing conjectures requires looking for disconfirming evidence. So it sounds like it's if someone listens to this podcast is either a manager or works with a manager in the investment field, they uh, if it's not already occurring, they want to create a culture where you can invite dissension, where you can invite uh, other views on a particular, in this case, let's just say securities, right? Stocks or bonds or whatever they're looking at. It's more than just simply saying that um a certain analyst needs to change the way they look at how they model Apple. But instead, it's we as an organization need to, to rethink the way they approach the overall decision making as a group, assuming they're having like a regular meeting, which most investment firms, uh, both on the buy side and sell side have. And in these meetings, they have to encourage dissension. Is that a fair uh, a way to think about uh, one of the solutions? I think so. So there's this idea called wisdom of crowds, where you can get different people together. And one of the things that's necessary, one of the mechanisms that's necessary for that phenomenon to work is to have there be independence of viewpoints. And so different people with diverse viewpoints come together and talk and, and come out of this process uh, with better predictive capacity than any one of them by themselves. 
But there's always the danger of the social process itself can undermine that because then because of discussions, they become less independent and they start to become more similar to each other. And so I think that's a natural tendency. And I think it's worth finding ways from an organizational structural standpoint to avoid that particular phenomena. One idea would be, for example, to have people write down their views very briefly, independently before the discussion even record them, right? So some place that's objectively recorded before the meeting and then start to have the discussions. I think that that's a useful touch point to go back to, to say, well, here's what I was thinking before I heard other people's viewpoints. You know, along this whole idea of uh, wisdom of crowds, I guess it could work against us though, right? Because uh, the area I'm, I guess I, I'm concerned about is that when I'm working with analysts and I, I see a, a very heavy reliance on using consensus estimates. So if the consensus for uh, for the 40 analysts that cover Apple is they're going to earn a dollar a share in the quarter, you find that uh, they tend to cluster very closely around this dollar a share. And if the company does anything much different than that, it tends to be a big surprise to the market. And I think this ability to, to generate alpha or generate unique insights is difficult to do because this kind of wisdom of crowds, people focus on this consensus number. And I guess, do you have thoughts on, on that as a potential problem and maybe a, a potential solution? Well, I think one thing would be to try and elicit people's opinions about this before they know the consensus number to keep that mystery mysterious to them until the end. And so rather than have them spend time finding evidence that helps them hit that as a target, uh, keep that in ignorance and such that they have to come up with a viewpoint of their own. I think that is potentially quite valuable. And in playing, talking about some of the social dynamics and how these play out in terms of meetings, um, these particular numbers can serve as anchors and that that's what the entire discussion becomes anchored around. And also from a standpoint of leadership. So often within these meetings, there are more senior people and they're more junior people. And you can imagine if a more senior person starts to indicate, well, I think this, and they have a rather strong viewpoint, it was probably not behoove more junior people to express a contrary viewpoint. And you can imagine group things starting to emerge very quickly there. And this is one of the things that I, I've, we've talked about in our organization, other organizations, is having people who are in more senior positions not disclose what their beliefs are, not disclose what they're predicting. They want to try and get lots of other voices in the room first, recognizing that theirs, for better or for worse, just happens to carry some more weight. It reminds me of uh, when you were talking about wait to look at the consensus. I was an analyst for about 14 years, and as I became more senior, I, I got better at not looking at consensus. I tried not to focus on it. And then when, especially when I'd be going through my, my financial model, which in Excel, you typically start at the top. Let's say it's for Apple, and you're starting at the top, and you're looking at you know domestic iPhone sales, international iPhone sales, and you're trying to forecast this into the future. I, I made more of an effort over time not to look at the EPS at the bottom of my model until I went through and looked at all the variables. And then and I try not to know consensus beforehand, because if I did know consensus going into it and I was looking at EPS as I was going through each of my different assumptions, I found that I was being biased towards saying, well, if I'm much lower than consensus than these next few assumptions I've got to go through, I probably have to be more optimistic towards, right? And so uh, I really like that idea of saying, let's, uh, let's try not to look at the consensus so it doesn't cloud our decision, but, but ultimately go back and benefit from it because it does have the wisdom of all the analysts who are covering the stock. So that's, uh, that's really helpful. I was wondering if we could kind of expand here on the confidence that you, you started talking about. I've seen you talk about studies in this area. I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit in terms of how 
confidence in, impacts our accuracy level. Right. So one of the most well-known studies in this goes back to a researcher named Oskamp, who was interested in the kind of forecasting ability of psychologists making predictions about the life outcomes of particular people. And so he set up this very clever experiment in which he got three groups of people practicing PhDs in clinical psychology who had at least 10 years experience. These were the experts. Then he got a group of graduate students, people who had their undergraduate degree and were working on their advanced degree in psychology. And then he got a group of undergraduates who had just signed up for their very first psychology course. And then he gave all of these different people the, this case study, and he varied the amount of information that each of these folks had access to. So some people had the entire full case study, and other people had very limited information. And so the participant's job was to use this information that was available to them to make predictions about how this person in this case study, how their life would turn out. And they also rated how confident they were in their predictions. And the pattern of results that he observed was, it's just, it's a great story. And this has been replicated many times. So first off, the question, there's a natural hypothesis that emerges, which is how valuable is expertise in making better predictions? So a natural hypothesis would be that, well, the experts, those who have more training experience, they would make more accurate predictions as to life outcomes. That turns out not to be the case at all. There's no significant difference in accuracy between any of those groups. This raises a question, you know, what is all that training good for? Well, in this case, at least it allows people to charge more money. The other variable that, was, that he manipulated in the experiment was how much information people had access to. Some people had very limited information in the case study. Others had a lot of information about this person. And it turns out that more information didn't help people make more accurate forecasts, at least in this experiment. But there is a big effect in terms of what it did do in that it made people more confident. So as people had access to more information, they were much more confident in the predictions they were making. But there was a much larger gap between the accuracy of those predictions and the confidence. And so overconfidence here was fueled by this availability of more information. And it's a great example of where more data is not always better. And so if I can kind of tie that back to this idea of using consensus what I, and even company management. So when I find uh, portfolio managers and analysts very often will do their initial amount of work, they'll, they'll potentially listen to a company's conference call, they'll clearly have already look to the company's financials, they probably look at valuation, and they say, we're going to do some more work on this. And they very often will go back to the company to get more information, or if they're on the buy side, they'll go to the sell side, and very often the sell side is going to the company to get all their information. And you know, this, this is my number, but I'd say at least probably 90% of the information being consumed by professional investors is originated by the company or through an intermediary who ultimately gets it from the company. And so I, I guess this is... Um, this this idea here that if they continue to get more and more information, but it's coming from the same source, uh, it could build their confidence, but it may not necessarily improve their accuracy. And maybe what they need to be doing is saying, if we are going to get more information, we need to make sure we're getting differing views. So we kind of avoid this confirmation bias. Is that a fair way to kind of apply this to what we do? Yep, I see that as a direct application of what we're talking about here. So this this is an, strikes me as an environment in which the confirmation bias could really be manifest. Part of what's going on is that people are developing a worldview and developing a narrative, and then they seek out information that already fits into that narrative. 
So for the research from OSCAMP, that's what was going on. Essentially, people had this view of what this person was like, and they were just fitting information that they had access to in that pre-existing worldview. And that drives confidence quite a bit higher because it's a much more coherent and enriched story, but it isn't actually useful from the standpoint of making better predictions. And so I think that there is a potential pitfall as people seek out information if they do so in a, in a biased way. And I also think that some of the digital solutions that we see emerging now may amplify this effect more so. So when you imagine a person goes and looks for information now, what do they do? Well, they Google and they Google, they put in the search terms and Google will help them find what they're already looking for. That's different than what's the most useful information, which is what they may not be looking for. And so I think that they're, the digital platforms we have, which are great, we have so much information at our fingertips, but this can backfire because more data is not always better, especially when it comes to making forecasts. And so we need to make sure we're, we're getting uh, alternative views. That, that's helpful. And, and along these lines, uh, I, I've seen you speak about the availability heuristic impacting overconfidence. We've kind of, I think, been alluding to it here, but can you kind of help us better understand this concept? Sure. So the availability heuristic, this is a psychological phenomenon and relates to memory. And that things that are easy to remember have a bigger effect on our judgment. And so, for example, if people have vivid narratives off the top of their head, this one particular example, it's very vivid. This can have a big effect on their judgments versus if you show someone lots of numbers in an Excel spreadsheet, these are very dry and that can you know, not have as much of an effect. So the, the way our memories work, the things that are easiest to recall can have a big impact. And that isn't necessarily what's easy to remember is not always necessarily reflective of how the world actually operates. And part of this is also the recency bias. Things that happen much more recently are very easy to call to mind. And this is different than the entire track of history, which is sometimes harder to remember. So along those lines, I think this starts to kind of spill into this idea of system one and system two thinking, and namely to spend a little bit more time, especially when there's something important. So can you walk us through the, the two types of thinking and, and why, why this is important? Right. So system one and system two uh, is a, a way in which scientists and those in cognitive science and behavioral science talk about the way in which the mind operates. And so system one is very fast, is very quick, is very intuitive. This is e things that are easy to recall the mind, uh, effortless. Uh, and that in many cases is works very well. Our brains are well attuned and evolved for large parts of the world and that works out okay. But there are lots of places where that can get us into trouble. And so the biases I've mentioned before, this availability heuristic and the confirmation bias and overconfidence bias, those can be fueled by these automatic processes that are happening in system one. System two is much more methodical, much more effortful. This is the part of your mind you use when you're thinking really hard about solving a problem. And often, I mean, good decision making can be when these two systems are lined up well with each other. But where we start to get into trouble is where there's misalignment, where our intuitions are off and that can lead people to make decisions or make judgments that are just out of sync with how the world is. And Kahneman has this great book on this. I'm sure many people have seen it called Thinking Fast and Slow. I would recommend it. It's an excellent source giving an overview of this dual systems view of how the mind works. So if I can 
tie that back to a, a real life example. When I think of working as an analyst myself and then working with analysts, uh, that there are some firms where the analysts are not expected to build their own financial models. So they, they can pretty much go out to uh, any of the market data service providers and look up the consensus estimate and they can tweak that. But that's pretty much what they'll start their starting point, whereas other firms expect their analysts to go through and, and build a, if it's for Apple, let's say it's build a, you know, 50 line, 100 line model. And, and I, I guess I think of that as the, if you're building out the model, you have to go through and let's assume there's, you know, between 10 and 30 assumptions you've got to build for each quarter going forward that you have to really stop and think about each of those on a granular basis. And, and it feels like that's going to be more, and especially if you have to go do some research to have a view on that, that sounds much more like the system two thinking than simply glancing at a, a screen that, of the consensus, which feels more like a system one thinking. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that these quick intuitive judgments, these feelings people have that are uh, very easy to call to mind, that sounds very much like system one thinking fast. Uh, and there's a place for this, no doubt. Experts can develop this and attune this to doing well in the world. But at the same time, this is the source of where we can get ourselves into trouble. Uh, shifting gears a little bit here, uh, I've seen you speak about the calibration curve. I'm hoping you could explain that a little bit because I think it's fascinating when it comes to this idea of being able to forecast and know your accuracy level. So in the decision sciences, we've worked out this general framework for thinking about how to bring together insights about how confident different decision makers are and how accurate they are. And this can be mapped on something called a calibration curve. And this is a tool that's useful for being able to diagnose when overconfidence is happening in particular judges. And so how a calibration curve is set up is you look at all the instances in which a particular forecaster says that they're 80% sure that they're right. And so from historical records, you look, say, they hear all the instances, they say they're 80% right. Well, then you look and see how often were they actually right. And hopefully it's about 80% of the time. For judgments forecasts where they say they're 40% confident, you'd expect them to be right about 40% of the time. And so the curve comes out of mapping these two things together. And so if a person is perfectly calibrated, then every time they say they're 90% sure, they're going to be right about 90% of the time. And you can imagine all the points falling on this diagonal very nicely. Right. So that would be perfect calibration. That wouldn't be indicative of overconfidence or underconfidence. That's really good judgment. However, we don't see lots of people doing this. So experiments have been done. Lots of researchers from different fields and domains have looked at people making forecasts and judgments and started to map out what their calibration curves look like. Meteorologists is one group of folks looking at the data of how these people make forecasts and judgments. And it turns out that their calibration curves are very good almost perfectly on the diagonal, which is surprising because many people have the intuition that meteorologists are miscalibrated somehow, and that's not the case. Other research has looked at other experts. So for example, there's a well-known study looking at medical doctors making predictions about the accuracy of their diagnoses. And this was with particular kinds of lung disease, um, tuberculosis and cancer of the lungs. And that particular study found a really pronounced overconfidence. So instances in which medical doctors were 70% sure that they were right, yet they were right only about 10% of the time. And that's a massive gap. And that's, that's an example of overconfidence and the sort of thing you'd want to start to give feedback to people about when they are saying that they feel they're 70% sure, they may be vastly overconfident. Well, is that why you think meteorologists are so accurate? Because they 
uh, so much as you know, we measure temperatures and precipitation. We measure all that so much that we have the data. Is there what is it that makes the makes it work so well for meteorologists and so poorly for those lung doctors? Right. I'm not advocating that if you feel sick, you should go see a meteorologist. I think that meteorologists, <laughs> Good. they have the benefits of having really very rigorous training around this idea of judgment calibration, not just being accurate, but making sure that their confidence levels are in line with their accuracy. They also have the benefit of using very quantified decision models and being trained to use those. And they also have an environment in which feedback can be provided very quickly and very clearly and in a very consistent way. Medical doctors often are working at the disadvantage of not being able to get clear feedback, often for two to three years as a particular illness plays out. So I think that there's this quick, tight feedback loop between judgment and data and learning that allows meteorologists to become much better calibrated more quickly. So if I can apply this to the field of professional investing, it sounds like, and we use the example of the meteorologist, it sounds like some of the ingredients that we need are to first have good data on performance. In this case, most uh, portfolio managers and analysts are either evaluated for their uh, security selection, either on an absolute or a relative basis. And so make sure we're collecting that data and then it's providing the feedback to them on a regular basis. Is that, would that be a good, I guess, starting point? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that some of the countermeasures we can think of to this kind of overconfidence things we can do. I think first is just awareness itself, a reminder to people that there is one of the most pronounced decision biases we see is overconfidence. And it's not just that other people are overconfident. This is all of us. We all do this all the time. I mean, any of us who has said, oh, no problem. I'll be able to finish this by the end of the week. And you find yourself kicking yourself on Friday afternoon saying, what was I thinking? Right. And we do this to ourselves routinely. And I think part of what you're highlighting too, is that in order to learn how to do better, we need quantified records. These records need to be dated in which we make predictions, we write them down, and then we find out whether or not we're right or not. And with each one of those predictions, we have an associated confidence level. And this I think is also really telling. I do this myself. I know other people who do this as well. And you look back in your notebooks, you say three months ago, I thought I'd be able to finish this and I was 90% sure. I mean, who wrote this down? You can see it's in your own handwriting, right? So I think that, that that's a valuable mechanism for helping people learn as well. I think that we can work with each other. I think one of the most valuable things we can do is have colleagues who understand us and are engaged with us and are willing to push, willing uh, to ask questions and push for disconfirming evidence and are even getting in the habit of asking ourselves questions like, why might I be wrong? Or how could things turn out differently than I'm assuming? And so I think that trying to develop a culture of where we look for merit in opposing viewpoints and see the value in disagreements and in different advantages, I think that's very valuable. You hit on uh, two things that I really like to emphasize when I'm training analysts is the, the first is that before you have a new stock idea, it could be any security idea, run it by a, a trusted colleague because it'll help to uh, eliminate or at least reduce some of these biases. Uh, and then the other is you, this whole point about documenting your thesis. I tell analysts, uh, usually they'll have an Excel model for their forecast. And before you change a rating, uh, go into Excel, create a new tab, put the date and put the rationale. Uh, what I like that I don't do, and I, I like, I'm going to add it now based on what you said, is add an extra cell there for uh, confidence level. And uh, because the reason why I'm not 
document, all the reasons you mentioned, is that they can, we, our mind doesn't revise history and we don't go wind up saying three, four, five, six months from now, well, this is why I recommended the stock. And it's like, well, actually, if you go back and look at your presentation from four or five months ago, it was very different. I think it's this idea of thinking in gradations that is useful to try and train people to do. So I think our mind has a natural fast tendency to think in black and white. It either is going to happen or it's impossible. It won't happen. When really what we want to do is foster people's capacities to think in terms of shades of gray along an entire continuum of how likely is something to happen and start to develop intuitions around that. And exactly like you said, if you're not going to have good feedback to yourself if you don't start to record those things. And so how confident am I? Well, you could do it on a scale of zero to 10. You could do it on a scale of zero to 100, whatever you're comfortable with, but it's worth recording that. This is in that moment, I felt, okay, this is 70% likely that it's going to turn out like this. And then you look back and say, okay, let me try and understand what actually happened with feelings at that moment. And one other tangent, you said you um, seek out information from a trusted colleague. I think we have a natural tendency to seek out information from a trusted colleague who likes us and already kind of agrees with us. And I think there's a lot of value in having colleagues who disagree with us. They can be trusted, but they just have a different worldview and they don't necessarily agree. And that it's not necessarily uh, like that it's a, a close friendship, but they'll be the ones who can be sometimes the most valuable relationships because they'll start off the conversation saying, I think you're totally wrong. And that can be a really informative discussion that can perhaps change how people think. That's a great point. And I think, I think the reason why I go down that path is I, I want to say to myself, whatever feedback they give me, I want to really, I want to take that in. And, and it's got to be someone I really, really respect. And to your point that find someone you really respect, which very often are trusted colleagues, right? But someone you respect that possibly disagrees with you. And that you, to get that mix isn't always easy, right? But if you can find someone that fits both those criteria, that's it's the best because to your point that they'll be willing to disagree with you. Uh, along these lines here, as you were uh, mentioning, I, I think this plays into this idea of scenarios and uh, back when I was an analyst, uh, I was at a, a firm where we were starting, I think we were the first on Wall Street to be doing this. We were creating an upside downside base case scenario. And we required all at the time, there were about 500 analysts globally at the at the sell side firm. We required all the analysts over the course of about a year to roll that out. And now that's at least 10 years ago, it's pretty much it's it's kind of the standard in the in the whole industry. And, and I, I didn't realize at the time how important the behavioral finance uh, decision sciences was playing a role here. It wasn't just simply, oh, we want to show everybody how we think, but we hopefully it's going to help us as well as analysts to make sure that we're we're thinking about these different scenarios. So it sounds like creating scenarios is important to try to overcome or mitigate some of these biases. I, I think so. And one of the things I would point out as well is not just scenarios, but precision in scenarios. So there's this great article that Mabusen and Mabusen have in Harvard Business Review from 2018 where they're talking about how people use words to capture uncertainty and probability. And one of the things they point out is that some forecasts can be said that are so vague that they're essentially useless. So for example, they use quote, Facebook will likely remain the dominant social network for years to come. Now you can imagine hearing that phrase in an analyst report or on you know, TV where there's a talking head in a good looking suit who says this, and I think we hear that and we nod and we say, oh, yeah, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense. But I would push back. I would say that that statement is vacuous and actually counterproductive. The multiple reasons. First off, it's so vague, it's hard to even know what it means. It's not testable. And it uses words like likely, which we don't have a shared understanding of what that means. If you ask lots of different people, what probability does the word likely correspond to? You have an exceptionally wide range of answers. 
Some people say it means 95%. Other people say it means close to 50%. So what we want to do then is start to encourage people to be much more precise. So who's making the forecast? Okay, I'm making the forecast. How confident are you in this? Well, I'm 95% sure. That's what I mean when I say likely. Okay, that Facebook will have more than 2.5 billion monthly users one year from now. And so it's also time scoped. I know exactly when I can score this thing and I'd be very precise about what I'm predicting. A prediction should be falsifiable. You should be able to look at it down the road and find out whether it's right or wrong. So I think that the kind of forecasts that we sometimes let each other get away with, things like, oh, I think Facebook will remain, will likely remain the dominant social network for years to come, turns out to be really pretty useless and undermines our ability to learn and do better. So I think forecasting and the kinds of scenario planning you're talking about are, are absolutely essential and valuable tools, but we need to make sure that we're precise and testable in that. So when we think about scenarios here, uh, I suspect they could help you avoid revising history. And I think there's a, a bias that uh, that kind of ties to this. Can, can you walk us through how we as humans can sometimes do that and how maybe to prevent it? Right. Well, I, I'm sure we've all had this phenomenon of, oh, I knew it all along, right? Knew it all along effect. And this is called the hindsight bias. And this is a tendency for the people when thinking back imagining the world as, as it was before and imagining their viewpoint of, of it then versus now, it becomes very easy for people to say, well, I knew what was going to happen. It, it, it's just obvious that it had to happen this way. So for example, and one of the big examples that stands out is the, the um, surprise around the election results of, uh, of Trump over Clinton. I think that a lot of people then after it happened said, well, it was obvious it was going to happen. Here's how we know that this, this just had to occur. But if you looked at the kinds of statements they were making before the fact, and these, this really turned out to be inconsistent with what their thinking was on it. And so I think one thing I'd be wary of is there's, you know, TV has lots of examples of people who are experts who are able to explain things after they've happened, but they have almost no capacity to predict things before they happen. And so I'm very skeptical about those kinds of explanations that exist. And I think that we have a tendency to do this to ourselves. So one of the ways to short circuit that is to keep good records. Here's what I think today. Here's how confident I am. You write that down. You don't have to share it. You can just keep it in a, in a notebook somewhere. But then it's worth going back and reviewing it, say, four months later to say, OK, how did that play out? I was 80 percent sure. Ooh, I shouldn't have been 80 percent sure. I didn't even see about issues A, B and C. I wish I would have known about that because I would, there's no way I would have been that confident. So I think that these are the sorts of things of record keeping and reflecting back in an objective way, not trusting our memory that can help us learn not to fall prey to these biases. So as we move towards the conclusion here of our podcast, uh, let me see if I have this right now. So overconfidence is widespread. It's insidious in terms of uh, our decision-making and, and specifically as we talk about that to this today, it's, it's, it can hurt our forecasting ability. And it's brought about by a few things, this uh, unintentional blindness, uh, confirmation bias, the availability heuristic you talked about and the hindsight bias uh, you talked about. Um, I guess two thoughts. First, uh, one, did I capture it all correctly? And then second, are there things you already talked about some things we can do, but is there any uh, can kind of summarize some of those things we can do to try to reduce this overconfidence bias? Sure. So I think just awareness itself. So there's this idea there's overconfidence, knowing what that is and being aware of that. And also knowing that this is one of the most widespread and enduring cognitive biases we see. And this can wreak havoc in lots of facets of our lives, especially when it comes to financial decision-making. 
part of it's fueled by this inattentional awareness, not knowing what we don't know. And I think that that's, that's very hard to try and there's no magic wand where you can teach people just to be aware of everything. But I think that helping people be a little bit accustomed to starting to look further than they see at the moment, to remind themselves of this allegory of the hidden gorilla, the one that walked right in front of them that they didn't see. And to remember that when they find themselves in a new situation where they think they see everything and just to pause and say, okay, what here have I not seen? What have I just looked totally past? And I think that that momentary reflection might help reduce the inattentional blindness we had talked about. Confirmation bias, and this is people's tendency to look for evidence that already supports their existing conclusions. This is one where you start to get into a habit of asking yourself, why, where might I be wrong? Who would disagree with me? And basic things like reminding yourself that in markets for every trade, there's two sides of it. And if you assume that the other side is also motivated to make money and they're just as smart as you, what do they know that you don't? And I think that that, again, that vantage point of trying to imagine yourself in someone else's shoes can help reduce the effects of the confirmation bias. Availability and hindsight, I think both of these can be reduced by keeping good records, by quantifying and being very precise in the kinds of forecasts and predictions we make, writing them down and having them recorded such that we can go back later and score them to find out. So you had mentioned this point of now adding a column to your forecast that was your confidence level. Absolutely, if you're gonna learn if you're overconfident, you need to have that data. And if you wanna learn not to be overconfident, you need to be able to have feedback around that data over time. So I think that's a great thing to do and very useful to try and nudge people away from this particular bias. And I also think that it's just, it's uncomfortable. I mean, doubt is an uncomfortable state of the world. Our brains sometimes don't like that and seek black or white solutions. And sometimes things just aren't that simple. So I think that that's one thing we can do for each other as we work in teams is recognize these kinds of limitations we have and find ways to support this. And it's okay to disagree and it's okay to be unsure and it's okay to be wrong. And all of these things are part of grappling with uncertainty in a constructive way. And I think that as we set up organizations to deal with that, surfacing some of these things, not hiding them, and talking about them very openly is worthwhile as we start to try and make better forecasts and keep records to show how forecasting is improving. That's great, Ryan. I really appreciate all these solutions. Uh, before we wrap up here, are there resources that you recommend for learning more about these challenges and ways to avoid them? Yep. So I mentioned a couple books so far. So Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman is a wonderful book. It's substantial, but if you're interested in this domain, especially I talked before about how our brains don't come with an owner's manual, this is actually pretty close uh, and it's, it's definitely worth reading. I mentioned the work of Tetlock and there's a great book called Super Forecasting, which he's written about talking about his research and his thinking along these lines. And for anyone interested in the science of forecasting, I would highly recommend that book. There's uh, the book called The Invisible Gorilla, which is written by a social psychologists talking about this phenomena of inattentional blindness. I think that that is useful to read and just to develop a little bit more of an intuition and humility of, okay, what am I not seeing here? And how can I start to look and see more broadly? Uh, and one other one I really like is by Annie Duke called Thinking in Bets. So Annie Duke uh, was getting her PhD I was very close to it. And then she decided to do something more interesting and play professional poker. And she did really well at it. And she, she wrote this book that's fabulous because it's this marriage of decision theory and the right way to think about uncertainty and making decisions with limited information and a lot of experience and great stories that come from playing poker as well as other domains. And she's got some excellent examples in there of the kinds of uh, traps we fall into and how to avoid them. 
great. Sounds like a great list. Well, unfortunately, we've uh, run out of time here. And so I'd like to thank you so much, Ryan, for your insights. It's been great to have you here on our podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Everything shared in this episode is for general education and is not considered for specific risk situations and does not provide investment advice. It is simply general education on behavioral finance. Thank you for joining us.